Well, good morning. So good to have you here. Met a number of first-time visitors this morning. I think there's more out there that I didn't meet. I just want to tell you that you came on a great Sunday because for once, uh, we're not in the middle of a book when you come for your first time, but we're beginning a new book study, and that is 1 Corinthians. And so welcome today as we begin a, a study of 1 Corinthians. And um, I will say this, uh, I'd like to begin profound, and so the book of 1 Corinthians was written to the church in Corinth. Um, but Corinth existed as a, a Greek city for several hundred years. It, it has, its history goes way back, but in um, 146 B.C., Rome destroyed Corinth in 146 B.C., and then turned around 100 years later under Julius Caesar in 44 B.C. and rebuilt it. Instead of being a Greek city, it was now a Roman city. During Paul's day, when he's writing 1 Corinthians, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. I've seen many estimates as to the size. The bottom line is they don't know how big it was. They just know it was big. One estimate I saw said that there were 150,000 freedmen and 450,000 slaves. I saw another estimate that said the population was somewhere around 800,000 people. Needless to say, it is a huge city during the time of Paul. Corinth was fabulously wealthy. If you took the banking center of New York City with the entertainment of Los Angeles and the licentiousness of Las Vegas and rolled them into one, you would have Corinth. Corinth was, um, other than Rome itself, Corinth was the megapolis of the Roman Empire. Corinth was a thoroughly Roman city and had a long history because of its geographical location. You can see on the map behind me, the city was located on a narrow isthmus, and uh, right over here, it was only about five miles wide. It was a strategic location, and what developed was this system of commerce where the, the people would offload their goods, say they're in the Aegean Sea, they wanted to get to the Adriatic Sea. Did you know that you can have a geography lesson today? Um, it's, it's very dangerous to sail a ship all the way around this peninsula, so they would sail into the harbor, offload their goods. They had wagons waiting and uh, a specific trail, and the oxen would pull the wagons up, and back down to the other side where other ships were waiting on the other side. And so it was a, it was a very strategic place. But um, it was a melting pot for people coming from the, the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire and even down south because you had, you had this land route here. And it was truly a, a multicultural city. So it's no surprise that Paul would want to come to Corinth on his second a missionary journey and start a church. It's a natural place to set up ministry because then the gospel could go out many different places. It's very strategic. Now, according to what we know, he in Acts chapter 18, he was in Athens and he goes to Corinth and he stays in Corinth for 18 months. The only time that he stayed longer in any one place was when he stayed in Ephesus, and that's where he went next. He went to Corinth somewhere about 50 A.D., left some time roughly about 52 A.D., somewhere along in there, and he stayed there a very long time. When he went to Ephesus, 
Now remember, this church is only between two and five years old when he's in Ephesus. When he went to Ephesus, there was this flurry of letter writing going on between him and the Corinthians. We don't know what set the whole thing off, but Paul's letter to the Corinth is a different from all his other letters. When you, when you read letters from Paul, you, you read Romans. What do you have going on in Romans? You have all these chapters laying out the doctrine of salvation and how great your salvation is. And then he says, therefore, you go to uh, uh, Ephesians and you have this doctrine of salvation laid out and how it unifies. And then he says, um, then if you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. And he begins to unpack it in Ephesians and so on, but not First Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a rapid-fire succession of topics. And I want to tell you something else. 1 Corinthians is not really 1 Corinthians. Did you know that? It was the second letter that he wrote to Corinth. Um, And look at, uh, if you have your Bibles open, turn to chapter 5 and verse number 9. I'll show you what I'm talking about. It, this is this is a second letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church. In five nine, it says, "I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people." Now we don't have that first letter or any other information about it, but we know at least one of the topics was sexual immorality. We also know that Second Corinthians was not Second Corinthians; it was Fourth Corinthians. It was another letter in between. But the 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 church. And when I say the church, I'm talking about the the church all around um, the world. When they were determining the canon, they didn't have the other two letters. And so 1st and 2nd Corinthians are the two letters that God preserved for all of the church to read even until this day. But we we have, um, it's not surprising that sexual immorality is something that is a topic in Corinthians, 1st Corinthians because if you were to go to Corinth, the, 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 the advertisement could be something like this. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It's kind of that kind of a city. And it was a haven to all sorts of immorality. Now, whatever else uh, it did, it, it, this letter that Paul sent to Corinth, the first one that we don't have, prompted a whole flurry of communication. Because when you come to 1 Corinthians you will note that there are at least 11 different topics mentioned in this letter. And almost every topic is in response to a question that the Corinthian people had. And in the midst of all this, if you look at chapter 1 and verse number 11, you find this group called Chloe's people. Chloe's people came to Ephesus bearing news about the church. And I'm going to tell you this, it was not good news. It was not good news at all. The church is being ripped apart by factions over a number of different topics. In fact, it's so bad that the church is in danger of being absorbed back into Corinthian society. And so it's not a good thing at all. And all of Paul's work, think about it. All of Paul's work for the last three to five years is in danger of completely disappearing. And so you you get a, a, an idea of why 1 Corinthians has a tone that it does. And it has to be disheartening because I will tell you from experience that pastoring a group of people is very personal. Now, I didn't say much about this, but three weeks ago marked the, the one-year anniversary of my last 
sermon in Pound, Wisconsin, before I moved here. The day after that one-year anniversary, I got this text. I want you to listen to it. Here's the text. Yesterday marked one year since you last preached at First Baptist Church. A full house sang songs of worship, and the word was preached just like you taught us from Scripture. Now, you talk about a heartening little text that you get from somebody that was Paul, no less than the Apostle Paul, gets nothing like this when it comes to the Corinthian church, does he? It had to be disheartening. Being a pastor, I, I would think it's just, it's just um, disheartening to hear, hey, Paul, listen, the church that you founded is being ripped apart by factions. Can you imagine what it would be like for Paul? And so he writes this letter back to them. And Chloe's people come over and say, everything's falling apart. And so alarm bells are going off. And this is why 1 Corinthians is so different than all the other letters. One commentator said this about the letter. He said, if Romans is like a theological limousine, 1 Corinthians is like a fire truck rolling up to a blaze. And that's how he distinguished the two different letters here. So uh, all you have to do is look at the section headings and see what kind of issues they're dealing with. Think about this. This fledgling church has rich people in it who are oppressing the poor in order to make a name for themselves. That's what they're doing. In fact, one rich person is sleeping with his stepmother, and instead of that being a scandal in the church, the church is celebrating it as a courageous way to use a man's freedom. On top of that, these rich people are trying to get their own rights, and they're suing one another in secular courts. Meanwhile, another faction in the church is looking at all the immorality that's going on in the church and have reacted violently and swung the other way and just declared that it's immoral for somebody to get married at all. They're advocating a sort of asceticism. People are showing up to celebrate the Lord's Supper and are getting drunk. Arguments are raging within the church about who's supposed to do this and who's supposed to do that. that. They're arguing about whether or not it's right to hang out in pagan temples. Their services have devolved into people showing off in all sorts of tongues and declaring themselves to be prophets. And finally, there was a faction that decided that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead and all of you are idiots for thinking so. The church is a disaster. How'd you like to join that church? Now, looking at it, you think about this. Looking at it, it's really hard to believe that this is a church at all. There are so many different problems. It's very easy to look at the book and decide, you know what? All of this is irrelevant. Providence Bible Church is not in danger of having this magnitude of problems. But I think as you study the book with me, you will see that the particular, even though the particulars are different between Providence Bible Church and the church in Corinth, the pressures, the pressures that they felt are the same pressures that we all feel in our culture today. Now think about it. The main trouble that the Corinthians had was that they were trying to figure out how to live as Christians in the midst of a pagan city. But they had a negative problem as well. And this is very important. Everybody listen. The patterns of thought and life that marked the city of Corinth had not gone away when these people became Christians. They brought those patterns of thought into the church with them. And as a result, 
was arrogance that allowed them to lord it over others, seek it to their own advantage, insisting on their own rights rather than looking out for the interests of others. We could sum it up this way. The, the trouble was not that the church was in Corinth. The trouble was that too much of Corinth was in the church, right? So now let's look at the first three verses. We're going to read them again. And, and I want you to notice how Paul begins because he begins very encouraging. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. So Paul and Sosthenes are, are apostles of Christ to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you read this on the surface, it doesn't look like very much, does it? He introduces himself. He says some encouraging things. But listen, what makes this introduction so surprising is that Paul is about to take him to the woodshed. Isn't he? For 15 chapters, he is going to just take them to the woodshed and, and show them what's going on. He's, he's going to talk about their pride and their arrogance and their immorality. And so I have a question for you, those that are thoughtful about um, their Bible reading. Is Paul just somehow just being nice? Is, is he just, is this, uh, if you've ever traveled outside the United States, one of the things that people note, Europeans note or other people, is how shallow Americans are in their greetings and um, what the, how they have to get used to it. So when I greet somebody, if I see Bo, I say, hey, Bo, how you doing? And um, whatever he says, you know, oh, great. And then you move on. You don't really want to know. I mean, if Bo looks at me and says, you know, well, if you, if you want if you want to know the truth, you know, the, the dog ate my Bible and um, I've got, um, you know, bunions on my feet and are hurting. And, you know, nobody wants to know. He doesn't, by the way. But um, but I'm just saying, nobody. we don't really want to know. And so is Paul just kind of being a superficial, polite person or is there something to it? And I, I believe that he's genuinely trying to encourage them. And I think that we can be as encouraged as well, because the main lesson I think we can learn today from Paul is you, church, be encouraged, but don't take any pride from it. Why? Because everything that you have to be encouraged about didn't come from you anyway. I think that's what he's teaching them from the very get-go. So I'm going to talk to you about three ways that Paul encourages the church in Corinth, and I think it's going to be an encouragement for you as well. The first thing that he does is he encourages them by who they are. Who are they? Look at verse number 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be saints together with those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And we see several things here. He says to the church of God that is in Corinth, he calls them a church. Now that's significant. It's more significant than any of us realize. And I think most of us here know 
um, that the word, when we hear the word church, we think of a building, don't we? Well, there's that church. Or we think of a, a group of people almost like a, a social club or a, a rotary club or, or something like this. We don't, we don't think of a church as being something glorious or even encouraging, especially if you came from a church that is having troubles, okay, like the church in Corinth. Some of us even cringe a little when we hear the word church because we've had experiences that aren't good. And this is encouraging that he used the word church to them. Why? Why is it encouraging? The answer is because the word church is the Greek word ekklesia. You've heard that word, right? Ekklesia, and it means the called out assembly. And in Paul's day, the called out assembly was not a religious term. It was a political term. And it's talking about a, a people who have authority. It's, it's, um, it's a word of dignity. And usually in, in the ancient world, it referred not to an assembly of people that just got together, but an assembly of people who got together and made things happen. They had the power to act. They had the power to, to speak or to do something. When the people of Athens got together in an assembly, they had power and authority to do something and um, as the ecclesia in Athens. And so many times in the book of Acts, you'll see the town got together and there were people making statements of authority. The town getting together is the, uh, the ecclesia. And so what gives it even more authority is the word that Jesus chose in Matthew 18. You remember Matthew 18? We know it as the church discipline chapter, don't we? And, and so on and so forth. But Jesus doesn't refer to them as a group of people. He doesn't refer to them as a crowd. In, in fact, he refers to them as a church, doesn't he? A church, an ecclesia, an embassy. He, they're an outpost of the people of God with authority. They had, he said that they had the keys to the kingdom. Isn't that astounding? They had the right to speak and act in the name of Jesus Christ. And so when Paul looked at the Corinthian church and he wrote, you are a church, what he said was inherently encouraging. They are a fully decked out embassy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize that if you're a member of Providence Bible Church, that's exactly who you are? You're not just a club. We're, we're not just a group of people getting together to encourage one another and to sing to one another. We are an embassy of the high king of heaven who's given us the keys to the kingdom, who said, until I come back, I want you to speak and act and judge in my royal name. A church. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Can, can, I, can I just be forthright? Y'all don't look like much. When, I, I know. You don't either, Jared. That's fine. I'm, I'm good with that. I could have told you that a long time ago. When the world thinks of a church, they think of someone who's culturally irrelevant. But when you hear the word church, 
you ought to think embassy of the high king of heaven with authority to speak and act in his name. Think about this. When we have a business meeting, it, it's not just to review a few financials and talk about policy and procedures. Not when we are called to order, we are in an embassy deciding matters of the kingdom. When we send out emails about so-and-so, and we sent out a couple recently, they're, they're getting ready to join the church. And the elders have already said, recommended them. And, and you are to look at these people and say, well, I know this person, and they evidence that they are a believer. And so, therefore, when we welcome an in, we are taking care of the king's business. Every time we welcome a new member or vote a new member or vote a member out, there's a click in the keys of the kingdom of heaven. It is an incredible thing that we're doing, and we carry authority in all that we do as a church. And there's something else. Have you ever thought what an embassy does in the world? I've, I've been to Poland many times. I, I love going to Poland. I've driven by on several occasions, the American embassy in in Warsaw. I don't know if you have or not. I have. Maybe you've been by the one in England or something. I don't know. But when I'm in Poland, I do as the Polish people do. I eat their Polish breakfasts, and and I eat their late lunches with borscht and, and all those sorts of things I do. But do you know that if I were to walk through the gates of the American um, embassy in Warsaw, I am no longer on Polish soil. I am now on American soil. And when you walk inside the American embassy, you're not going to find a list of all the kings of Poland. You're going to find all sorts of Americana. I would imagine that the hamburgers at the American embassy are better than any hamburger you can get in Poland. French fries the same way. They're not going to have Polish stuff. They're going to have American stuff. Listen, because part of the job of an embassy is to show off the glories of the United States of America. We are selling and showing the culture of the USA to Polish people. And people, I want you to think, when you and I gather in this place, you and I are supposed to be doing the same thing. We're to be reflecting and showing and selling the culture and life of heaven. And when you go out from here and you, you go there, you're supposed to see things different happening. When people come to visit this church and, and they're not believers, they should see it differently here than they do anywhere else in the world. And when you and, and the motivators and the values and the things that people are pursuing out there are not to be the same motivators and values and things that we're pursuing in here. We're not supposed to have the same motivations. We're not to have the same values. We're not to be pursuing them here. It's supposed to be something different. We may not look like much, but we are an outpost of the kingdom of heaven. And it is to churches just like us that Jesus said this. Listen to what he said. Fear not, little flock. The Father is pleased to give the keys of the kingdom. Amen. So they're a church. But he says something else in verse number 2. He says they are sanctified. He says they are sanctified. Now what does that word sanctified mean? Hagias, it means holy, right? Sometimes in Scripture, the word sanctified speaks of the process of becoming more like Jesus Christ. Obviously, that's what we call the process of sanctification. 
obviously Paul is not talking about, think about it, he's not talking about their progress in sanctification because there is none. He calls them sanctified, and then he turns around a few words later and he calls them saints. He's talking about position here. He's not talking about their practical life. They are sanctified because they are declared holy because of what Jesus has done for them. And the same is true for you. If you are in Christ, you are in the process of being made sanctified, being made holy, being made more like Jesus and more like his image. But prior to that, you are already sanctified. You are already holy because you stand united with Christ. And that's the same idea here. In verse number two, he calls them saints. Same word. They're sanctified and then they're saints. And because of the wrong popular teaching of the Catholic Church, we oftentimes think of, think of saints as some super holy person. And then we say, we'll say something like, well, you know, I'm no saint. Then we say that, I'm no saint. Well, as a matter of fact, sir, you are a saint. And it's not because of what we have done. It's because of what Christ has done in you. And so he calls them saints. And as a re- direct result of our union with Christ, because we are united with him by faith, what is his becomes yours, and what is yours becomes his, and that is not fair. Because what, it, what we get is Christ's righteousness, and what he got was our sin. And it was not a fair trade. And so Paul, when, he, when, when Christ takes our sin and we take his righteousness, we are declared holy before the throne of God. The only, the only place that it really matters. And so he encourages them for who they are. He calls them saints. He calls them holy ones. Isn't that wonderful? Everyone here who is in Jesus Christ is a saint. And you're part of the church of the living God. And you, you have that authority as a gathered people, and you have the keys of the kingdom. But there's a second thing that he encourages them. He encourages them for who they are, and secondly, he encourages them for what they have. Now, what do they have? Well, when you read the book, you think, well, probably not much, right? But Paul mentions something. He says, grace and peace, verse number three. Now, this is not some sort of a, a nice salutation. Because he says, listen, look at what he says in verse number three. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when he says grace and peace, he's actually thinking about the gospel. There's so much I could say, but let me say something about a little bit about grace. When we think of the word grace, what is grace? We always think of the Sunday school answer, don't we? Grace is getting what we do not deserve. That's really a deficient answer. Because really, here's grace. You rather you ready? We, at one point, were sticking our finger in God's eye. And we were saying, God, I don't want your holiness. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want your heaven. I don't want any of that. And yet... And I don't want your glory, and and yet God saves us, and we are receiving an inheritance that Christ earned for us. 
That's grace. It's way greater than getting what we don't deserve. Peace from our current conflict with God. Peace from future punishment by Him. And so we have the gospel wrapped up in grace and peace. So they have grace and peace. God turned them from being enemies to, and turned them into and people receiving an eternal inheritance. They have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so these are very important things, but they have something else. I want you to notice what he says in verse number 5 to 7. Look at these verses. So that in every way you are enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. God gave them the ability to speak about him. He gave them a, a knowledge of who he lo- who he is and he spiritual truth and he gives them gifts to serve now notice what's missing when you read these first nine verses you don't see the common salutations that paul gives to churches like i see your love for one another i see your love for the churches uh, in other churches by your giving there there's none of that he doesn't talk they don't talk about their love for other believers or other churches. He doesn't even say anything about their work. You know how he talks about churches and what they've done. He doesn't talk about their witness. Word has gone out over all the region about who you are. Well, word's gone out about Corinth, but it's not any of that kind of stuff, right? These are things that he thanks God for in other churches. All he thanks the Lord for with this church is speech and knowledge in gifts. And here is what is so fascinating. Everybody everybody pay attention. If you're half asleep, wake up. Okay? This is what's so fascinating. The very things that he thanks the Lord for in them are the very things that are giving the Corinthians trouble. Isn't it? These are the three big things that they've wrapped their arrogance and their pride around. It's their pride in their speech. It's their pride in their knowledge. It's their pride in their gifts that have caused all the problems in the church. And yet Paul says, I thank God that he's given you these things. Can I ask you a question? Are we any different? I've done a lot of marital counseling in my day. And one of the things I see in marriage is if a marriage if there's an extended period where the marriage is having trouble most of the time it's the wife um and it's not because they've done anything bad it's because the husbands are are problems okay uh, okay aside i gotta i gotta tell you this i took a counseling class when i was an undergrad it's the worst counseling class i've ever had the guy walked in and he said all marriage problems it's the guy's fault and we spent one whole class period arguing with the professor, well, what about this, this, and this? And he'd say, it's a guy's fault because of this. It's a husband's fault because of this. All right, I got that out of the way. Now let's get back to what I'm, application. Now listen, what I've seen, many times it's a wife because the husband is, is out to lunch or whatever else. These, th- these problems, they begin to build up and they build up and they build up. And, and the wife gets to where... 
she can't see anything good in the husband. And the husband can't see anything good in, in the wife. It's mutual. And I have to sit them down in a counseling session and say, y'all are focused on the wrong things. Focus, yes, acknowledge these problems. But focus on the grace of God in your spouse's life. And you know what's interesting is generally whatever is a person's strength is what's causing the problem in the marriage. So if you're really good with money, that good gift has been perverted and you control your wife's money. If you're... um, if you're a, a people pleaser, you love people, that becomes a problem in your marriage because you're never home. You're out doing stuff for everybody else. You see what I'm saying? And so the strengths are the weaknesses in the marriage. And what Paul is doing is what a lot of married people need to do because I have people walk in and say, there ain't anything good about my wife. I'm like, eh, I see good qualities in your wife, and here they are. Here are some of the ways that God's grace is evident. And you need to focus on those things and not the twist, the perverted twist of it that sin nature does. You see that? Does that make sense? And that's what Paul is doing here in Corinth. Well, now I got myself in big trouble. We'll get back to uh, what he... Why does Paul do that? Because even in the things that cause the Corinthians so much trouble... Paul still sees evidence of grace. And even in the things that you would say that's a problem, Paul sees evidence of grace. And so um, we should learn to do the hard work of looking beyond what you see as a problem and get behind it to see the evidences of grace in somebody's life. If you stop, simply stop with criticism in your thinking and interaction with other Christians, you have not gone far enough. Paul did the hard work to see the grace behind the problem in other people's lives. That's the general principle I wanted to get across. Now, he also commends them for where they are headed. And where, where are they headed? Look, look at verses 7 and 8. So you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul also thanks the Lord for them and encourages them because he looks forward to the day where they are declared guiltless before God. And that's the beauty of the Christian life. The beauty of the Christian life is that judgment is coming. And that judgment will come on that day that has already been declared. And the judgment that comes to the Christian's life has already been declared. You ready to hear it? The judgment on the day of judgment that comes to the Christian's life is not guilty. Amen? Not guilty. That's where all of us are headed. We can draw our encouragement from that. We spend our lives looking to get verdicts from people that we think matter. Our bosses at work, we work ourselves to death. Our spouses, children, your parents, 
and so on and so forth. Even even if it's if it's in an athletic accomplishment or accomplishment in a hobby or whatever else it may be, we're always looking for verdicts from other people. The verdict, the only verdict that will matter on that day is not guilty, delivered by God through Jesus Christ. If you're sitting here today, you know that there are problems in your life called sin. All of us have a sin nature. All of us have sin. And the Bible is clear that the penalty for sin is death. And yet, Ephesians says, but God is rich in mercy and through his wonderful love sent Christ to die on the cross for our sins. He paid that penalty, the trade that I was talking about earlier. And you too, on the day of judgment, can receive the sentence not, or pronounce it, I'm sorry, not guilty by trusting in the work that Jesus did on the cross. My question is, have you done that? Are you confident that on the day of judgment you will hear the words, not guilty? Are you confident that God will pronounce you guiltless on that day? That's where all of us are headed. We're a church. We're an an embassy, a called-out assembly with authority. We have grace and peace through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we're headed to heaven if we're in Christ to hear the verdict, not guilty. Lord, I thank you so much for this letter. It's been so encouraging to me already just to study this, just to to know what is ours in Jesus Christ. I pray that we, Lord, will have confidence in your word. I, I pray for anybody here who either is not sure of their salvation or maybe even deceiving themselves into thinking that they are saved, that your Holy Spirit will speak to them and that they will get the matter settled as soon as they possibly can. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.